anyone sightseeing their way through Europe will see castles, gardens, palaces, and jewelry of centuries of kings and queens. Through so much of its history, most of Europe was ruled by a handful of royal families. Leslie Carroll has been checking into the stories of these royal bigwigs. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share some of the juicy personal stories behind royal marriages, from Eleanor of Aquitaine in the 12th century to Charles, Prince of Wales, today. Leslie, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. So now, this book of yours, you've chosen 32 different royal couples, starting with Louis yes. VII and finishing with Charles and Di. Of course, Henry VIII gets six chapters, right? Yeah, he's a perennial. He's an evergreen, and everybody loves him. So I figured I'd put in all six wives because in each of their own ways, his marriages, all of his marriages were notorious. First of all, when we think of your coverage of notorious royal marriages, they're all in Europe, right? Yes, if you count Russia as well. We, we right. visit Catherine the Great and Nicholas and Alexandra in the book as well. On what basis did you choose the, the 32 royal couples that made the cut for your book? I was trying to find a balance between what many people think are the better-known couples, such as Henry VIII and his wives and Napoleon and Josephine and Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, and some of the marriages that were less well-known. One of my favorites, because it was just so awful, was the marriage between George Ludwig of Hanover, who became George I of England, and his first cousin, Sophia Dorothea of Zell, and they hated each other on sight, and it was a dreadful marriage that ended in divorce. But it was so much fun to write about, and it changed the kingdom. He ended up in England without a queen. There was no queen of England when George I sat on the throne because his wife was imprisoned back, ex-wife was imprisoned back in Germany. So each of the marriages that I chose in some way had an impact on the history of their own kingdom or of their own country or on a grander scale, all of Europe. Well, you know, we can think in our recent history here in the United States how sex has had uh, impact on history in the White House. Um, give me some actual examples of how love and romance and sex has shaped European history. Well, France, for example, operated under a system called Salic law, which meant that only a male heir could inherit the throne. So daughters didn't count. And I open up with the very first marriage of Eleanor of Aquitaine and her fourth cousin, Louis VII, King of France. And they were married for several years, and she gave him two daughters. And they needed a dispensation from the Pope in order to marry because they were cousins. But after all this time when she didn't give him any sons and therefore there were no heirs directly from their bodies to the kingdom, they decided to get a divorce. And that changed the face of Europe because Louis needed a male heir for the throne, and he finally got one on his third wife. Of course, you have Henry VIII and his love affair with Anne Boleyn, which led to the creation of what we now know as the Anglican Church. Right. Everybody was Roman Catholic before then, and he was so desperate to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, that he would do whatever it took, and that ultimately resulted in breaking with the Church of Rome and founding his own religion. Now, when you think about uh, royals and marriage and war, uh, it's important to remember that up until relatively modern times, there was this old regime notion that some were born to be rulers and others were born to be rulees. And at one point, four or five families essentially owned all of Europe, right? Yes, I would say so. And they had to marry carefully within their ranks. You had to marry each other. As I point out in Notorious Royal Marriages, almost every royal marriage was a political and dynastic 
alliance. The point was to make friends. Yeah, so you have two parallel worlds. You've got the political needs of the royal family and to marry your children into the right households. Uh, I think, who was it, Maria Theresa had, what, 16 kids? Maria Theresa had about 16 kids, and one of them was Marie Antoinette, who, of course, married into the, the Bourbon French family, and another daughter married the King of Naples, who was a congenital idiot, but that didn't matter to Maria Theresa. Speaking of congenital idiots, weren't they all um, marrying, like, second cousins or first cousins? And was there a trend that there was a lot of, at least, minor deformities among the royals in Europe through history? Yes, that's what happened, Rick, because the gene pool got narrower and narrower. And as any ninth-grade biology teacher will tell you, inbreeding often leads to insanity. So you have first cousins marrying first cousins, and then their kids marry their first cousins, and on and on. The royal family in Spain was famous for their underbite, right? They all had an underbite. Yes, the Spanish bourbon underbite, yes. And if, and you, then, were the, if you were the court portraitist, you didn't want to exaggerate the underbite in the, in the royal not portraits. Not much. But if you look at all of the Habsburgs, because they had wed into the, the Spanish bourbons, they've got the underbite, too. Oh, do they? Well, they're related to the... To the uh, they're all they're related. All... And, and if you start looking at the Hanovers, they all have big bulging eyes. That's true. All of the Georges, one, two, three, four, and Victoria, they all have those big bulgy eyes. And that's not just some uh, artist making his own little political commentary, but that's actually how they looked. That is actually how they looked. Wow. Now, I understand there was some um, sort of incestuous gossip about the royals of Germany and England leading into World War I. What's the story there? Do you know any of that? I don't the, the cover ki- that the Kaiser, in notorious marriages. So. The, yeah, that's a little bit different than the topic of your book, but the Kaiser was related to... Uh, the Kaiser was Queen Victoria's first grandson, and she right. never liked him. And there was always tension between England and Germany. And because um, it was kind of Even like though cousins. Victoria married her kids, and they were all cousins, yeah. yeah. Even though Victoria married her, her kids into the, the German houses... Mm-hmm because they were expected to marry other Protestants. And Spain and Italy and France were all Catholic countries. So the English were running out of people to marry, so they were marrying the Germans. We're talking about the royals here. These, these royals are the kind of people who, you know, they've got everything. They, they don't ever make their own orange juice, that's for sure. Everything's done for them if they want it to be done. And they have to get married for political reasons or Protestants and Catholics or whatever. So they have a parallel world of their own personal romantic needs that's probably separated from their political sort of marriage reality. Talk just That's a why bit they about all that. had affairs. And it was, it was routine to have affairs, wasn't it? Absolutely. For the king. It was okay. Not for the queen. Okay. What was good for the gander was absolutely not good for the goose. A queen was supposed to be a well-dressed womb. And she hmm. put up and shut up with the king's various mistresses. And some kings were more discreet about them than others. But Catherine of Aragon was supposed to look the other way when... Henry flaunted his passion for Anne Boleyn in front of her, but Catherine, of course, was in love with her husband and wasn't about to look the other way, not just because she loved Henry, but because she was the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, and the alliance between Spain and England at the time was vital. So if she lost Henry, it also meant Spain lost England. Sounds like an incredible political soap opera. Unbelievable. It's political, it's sexual, it's <laughs> juicy. I write historical fiction as well, and I love making stuff up for a living as much as I enjoy writing the historical nonfiction. But I promise you, the more 
research you do. You don't need to anybody make can up. do this. You don't need to make <laughs> this stuff up. It's unbelievable. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Leslie Carroll, and she's written a book called Notorious Royal Marriages, and it is a fascinating look at the reality of the political and romantic mixing up of Europe as Europe bungles its way through the centuries. In all of your studies, which of the monarchs, uh, kings or queens, was the, the most hypersexed? Charles II. He sired either 17 or 19 royal bastards, and he never did have a legitimate child, and that in itself changed the face of Europe because his brother James II, who inherited the throne, was a Catholic. So there are political consequences of these guys. Leslie, when you're thinking about notorious royal marriages and you want to spice it into your sightseeing plans, what are some of the palaces that you went to where you can kind of envision this? Uh, How can we make it part of our sightseeing? Well, you could actually do a royal bedrooms tour if you wanted to. I have been to Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle. You could go to Balmoral uh, last fall. When I was doing my research, I visited Versailles and Malmaison, which was Josephine's home with Napoleon. You can go to the Hofburg and Schönbrunn. In your book, you write, there's almost a palpable sadness in Malmaison, the the palace of Emperor Napoleon and, and Josephine. It's turned into a museum now. I wanted to see it the way Josephine had envisioned it when she first, she was known for beautiful gardens that she put there. The whole, Malmaison means bad house in mm. French, and nobody knows the origin of that because it was such long before Josephine bought it. But to me, it felt very much like the sad house. Of course, Napoleon famously divorced Josephine in 1810, but she got to keep Malmaison. And there was something in the air as I walked through the rooms, even though they're now set up as a museum of Napoleonic, but you can see many of the famous paintings that you'd see, even if you trolled Wikipedia, you'd see the famous, famous portraits of Napoleon and Josephine and some of their furniture and their furnishings and the beautiful swan-shaped bed that hmm. Josephine loved and what she died in. And I went outside afterwards. It was a very gray day. And the facade of the building is very gray, and there there was an incredible palpable sadness in the mm. air. And I went to look at what was left of the Rose Garden, and being late September, there really wasn't much. But I took a photograph of what I thought was a white rose, and when I came home and put the photos on the computer and enlarged it, I saw that it had little pink flecks, tiny dots all over it. And to me, it just felt like sort of a survivor of the French Revolution, almost this beautiful pure rose speckled with blood. And it became a metaphor for me of the history of France at the time. Wow, that's beautiful. Of the revolution and the terror and everything that led to the Napoleonic Empire and ultimately to his speckled speckled white rose. Wow. And that's just outside of Paris, Malmaison, right? Yes, it is. It's very easy for anybody to get to, even if they don't speak French. And also just outside of Paris, of course, is Versailles. And I understand in Versailles, one wing was for the king and, and one wing was for the queen. Yes, they had their own wings, and they met in the middle on special occasions. And for the queen to come over to the king's... The king would visit the queen, and there's a marvelous story about this because Marie Antoinette and her husband, who at the time she married him, he was the Dauphin of France, which meant he was the heir to the throne. He was the grandson of Louis XV, and he became Louis XVI about four years after they got married. 
And Maria Theresa strongly felt that husbands and wives should share a bedroom all the time. She absolutely despised the French tradition where the husband would have to tiptoe out in the middle of the night followed by umpteen servants and Mm -hmm. and go to the queen's bedchamber. She thought it was terribly unnatural that Marie Antoinette and her husband were not sharing a bedroom every night. And she said, "Just it's so embarrassing. Well, no wonder you're still a virgin. She would write her daughter scathing letters Uh. from Vienna telling her what she should and shouldn't be doing in the bedroom and that, that having a separate bedroom from Louis was a terrible, unnatural idea. And how, how could she possibly get an heir? And Maria Theresa had a point because, again, France was a country where only a male could rule. And if Marie Antoinette did not make a baby very quickly and a male baby at that, and she didn't get one until uh, her second try, she could be sent home. Queens yeah. could be sent home if they did not have babies, as I said before, that were meant to be a well-dressed womb. The well-dressed womb. I, I think that's a, a great phrase. <laughs> By the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Leslie Carroll, and Leslie's written a book called Notorious Royal Marriages. Leslie, of all the royal couples you studied, which famous royal couple do you think had true love? Who was happiest just as man and wife? There are two in my book. Uh, first, I would say Victoria and Albert, even oh, though... Yeah. It was an arranged match, and they were first cousins. It was love at second sight with them. Victoria, at first, when she met Albert, wasn't sure she wanted to marry at all, and she wasn't sure that she wanted to marry her first cousin, wasn't sure that was such a good idea, wasn't sure she'd feel for Albert. She said that she was worried that she might like him as a brother and a friend, but not as a lover. She actually said that at second glance, he came over for a second audition, so to speak, mm-hmm. and it was absolute passion. She writes in her diary, and here, one of the things I love about Queen Victoria is the young Victoria is not the dour little prude that everybody yeah, thinks I, of when I they just think can't of Victoria. Picture. She was a sexy girl. And, oh boy, she talks about their wedding night, and, and the night after, all of this is in her diaries, and, and I incorporated a lot of it into wow. my chapter in Notorious Royal Marriages. I read that only Albert could call her Vicky. Oh, that I didn't know, Yeah, but I'm not surprised. I'm sure she was not amused if they took familiarities. And we know uh, Victoria from her black outfit, and, and I think she Absolutely. set new standards in mourning after Albert, her beloved Albert, she died. She vowed to rule her empire the way Albert would have done, and all of the wow. prudishness and the priggishness came from him. Hmm. His mother ran away with a younger man when he was five years old, left the family. So that really colored his his view of women. But I want to share one lovely tidbit that's from the book and from Victoria's diaries about her passion for Albert. This is the second time he came to England to visit, and the two of them are watching a royal military parade. And she writes in her diary, she couldn't concentrate on the, the horseman parading past her because she noticed that Albert was wearing white cashmere breeches with nothing under them. Vicky said that? Vicky said that in her <laughs> diary. That's what she was looking at, but Albert's she, crotch, <laughs> when she should have been reviewing the military parade. So that's the Queen Victoria that I want people to know from notorious royal marriages. She was delicious. The woman who inspired the, quote, Victorian age. Exactly. Amazing. The woman who, who would deny that, that any other woman had such a vulgar appendage as a leg <laughs> was uh, wrote in her diary how delighted she was the day after wow. uh, their marriage when Albert put on her stockings for her. That's fascinating to humanize these royals. When you go to London, you can find a lot of Victoriana and a lot of history about Victoria and her love for Albert. 
when he died, I understand, they used to have all of those um, wrought iron railings and so on around England used to be gaily painted, and she just dictated that everything should be painted black, black uh, in sadness. Black. I didn't know it. what the genesis of that was, and but there's certainly all, the all black, black railings now. today, yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Leslie Carroll, who writes Notorious Royal Marriages. And Leslie has devoted a chapter to each of the 32 European royal couples that she figures is most interesting from a love and marriage and intrigue point of view. Leslie, if we're doing our traveling and we're, we're, we're dreaming up a trip and we want to splice some of these uh, ideas into our sightseeing, give us some tips on where we might go in order to uh, enjoy this slice of European history. Well, if you want to make a trip of royal bedrooms alone, I rattled off here. You can have Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, Balmoral, if they'll let you in, Versailles, Malmaison. You can go to Vienna and visit the Hofburg and Schönbrunn. You can visit Hampton Court and follow in the footsteps of the Tudor bedrooms, a Brighton Pavilion, and visit where George IV would have slept. You could also, if you have a macabre bent, visit their final resting places, if you're in Paris, I'd suggest going to the Basilica of Saint-Denis, where also some coronations took place of the French kings. If you're in England, you can visit Westminster Abbey. If they do let you in at Windsor, there are Frogmore Chapel and St. George's Chapel is where several of the British royals are buried. And if you're a big fan of Nicholas and Alexandra and the Romanoffs, you can visit the Cathedral of Saints Peter and Paul in St. Petersburg and... If it's Napoleon who's your idol, you can visit Les Invalides in Paris. And, of course, at, at Les Invalides, you've got that incredible tomb just for Napoleon under the big dome, surrounded yes. by his museum. Also, if you're interested in the Habsburgs, you can go to the Kaisergruft, which is the place where the emperors of uh, the Habsburg realm that's right. were all buried. Yes. And that's quite a, a beautiful place to, to check out if you like royal tombs. And you can also visit St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey. Leslie Carroll writes Notorious Royal Marriages. Leslie, thanks so much for a fascinating insight into European history. You are very welcome. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your European travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next European adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.